Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you today, and uh, it's great to be back inside for those of us who are, and we're, it's great to be able to see those of you who are joining us outside, and we also want to uh, acknowledge those of you who are connecting with us online. Um, welcome. We're glad everyone is able to participate in these various uh, ways uh, this morning. As we um, now turn to God's Word, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to uh, turn with me to the book of Matthew. You will find the text that we'll be looking at in your worship guide. Um, so we're turning to the book of Matthew in chapter 8, and we'll read verses 23 to 27, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into uh, see what it has to say to us today. It says this, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, you've opened our eyes to see something of the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And yet we still want to see more. We want to see him as the awesome one he is. And so speak to us today, we ask. Lord, pull the veil further back. And give us a greater glimpse of you. And work within us, bringing about transformation and greater love for you and trust in you and obedience to you. And I pray this for every single one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, very familiar uh, passage to many of us. Uh, in this boat with Jesus, you've got the keen ones. You've got the enthusiasts. You've got the ones who want to follow Jesus. They, these aren't, this isn't just the crowd of onlookers and spectators who, who have just come for a show. No, these are the ones who want the backstage passes. They want to be around Jesus permanently. They're all in. Uh, he even made it very clear to some people a few chapters earlier in Matthew that they shouldn't come, that they're not ready. They're not ready to follow him. And so these ones in the boat, yeah, they're the followers. They may even be the very 12 that we will have named in other parts of the New Testament. And the first thing that happens, having made this decision to follow him, to go with him, is a storm. He takes their decision to follow him, and he says, okay, you're going to come with me? Okay, this is where we're headed into the eye of the storm, into trouble, into difficulty. And that's surprising. That's perhaps against the expectations uh, we might have, because I suppose we naturally imagine that following Jesus is offered perhaps as a way of getting out of trouble. I come to Jesus, I come to Christianity, I come to the church as a way of avoiding the troubles in this world. This is my escape hatch. This is, this is how I sideline the, the difficulty, how I swerve around it. 
But Jesus doesn't provide us with an escape hatch in that sense. In fact, Jesus seems to say, when you say, I want to follow you, he'll say, yeah, okay, let's go and find some trouble then. Let's go into some difficulty. It does seem very clearly intentional in this story. And so you've got to ask, what was the point of it? What's he trying to achieve by taking them into this huge storm? Which, by the way, is still something of a, a meteor, uh, you know, a, a phenomenon in, in, on the Sea of Galilee. As I understand it, it's to do with the geography. Uh, the, because of the geography, that they have this tendency for these violent storms, these squalls, as they're called, to, to, to erupt quite suddenly and be genuine, genuinely f- fatal. In fact, wrecks, going back to the time uh, of Jesus, archaeologists have found all kinds of wrecks of fishing boats. And presumably, these sailors would have, would have known you know, friends, relatives, neighbors, people in their kind of network of relationships who may even have been lost at sea. And so Jesus must be aiming to achieve something by doing this, it would seem. And sure enough, he is, because it's in the storm that the men cry out to him, Master, Lord, save us. Save us. They call out to him in desperation, even though they are the sailors, they are the fishermen, and he's a carpenter. They they call out for help to a guy who doesn't even live near the water. He's not from around here. He's a a bit inland. He's from Nazareth, and and he works in a, a workshop. That's Jesus' world. He's good with his hands, not so with boats. And yet it comes to the point where they cry out, help us. To the carpenter. He's the last person you'd expect to call. And maybe in that there's a tiny parable for us, actually. The point in our lives where we start to reach out to Jesus is usually the point when we're most desperate. It's the time when you think, I never thought I'd ask him for help. I never thought I'd turn to Jesus because he's so often the bottom of our list. He's the last resort. We'll try everything. We will venture down various avenues of self-help, medication, relationships, forms of security, whatever we might find that, 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 that builds a gap between us and the danger or the panic or the struggle and and. These things, when they fail, we'll, we'll, you know, we're, we're pushed to other resorts, and finally, we reach the bottom of the list, and it's Jesus. Oh boy, I, I never thought this would happen. Okay, Jesus, help me. I mean, maybe even that's why you're in church today. Maybe for some, this could even be, you know, it's been a while since you've been to church, maybe for years. You never thought you'd be in this kind of environment. You never thought you'd be listening to a sermon, and yet you are. Because God's been wise in the way that you've journeyed through life, and he's provided a path that has put you in a place of seeing your needs, seeing your desperation, and calling out to him, Jesus, if you're there, maybe you can help me. And it's interesting reading the Gospels. It's interesting how he seems to deliberately take people who follow him into situations of desperation. In fact, he seems to make this a priority. Jesus does this. He he presents his disciples, his keenest followers, with circumstances that squeeze them, that cause them to realize all kinds of things. Why? 
because he's a master trainer. He knows how to train us. He is so good at training. Listen, if you follow Jesus, I promise you difficulty. But I also promise you the difficulty is totally under control. And it's under the control of someone who knows you perfectly and knows how to train you. He knows how to help you because he has a plan for your life. And his plan for your life is better than the one that you have. And he will work with you to to get you there. And that's what we're looking at as we go through this story. And so I I want us just to see very simply three things that we'll see how he we will see how he trains, how he trains. And, and first of all, let's look at the danger itself, the very first thing, the, the very real danger. You see, these disciples are terrified because their lives are genuinely at risk. Their lives are truly threatened. This storm is, is real. There's a den, genuine danger of the boat, that the boat will capsize. It'll be wrecked. The waves are crashing down upon it, it's going to go down quite likely, and they will go down with it to the depths, and they will drown. This is a very, very frightening situation. They don't expect to easily survive the night. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you actually felt that kind of threat on your life, ever felt that level of of danger where you thought, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. And I guess there are versions of that uh, that are slightly less fatal, but nevertheless, times that make you feel, you know, your heart kind of leaps up into your mouth. We, we feel, I, I, I am positively in a dangerous situation here. And it's hard to hold on to things. It's hard to know what to depend upon. It sort of disorients us. And here's a boatload of, boatload of men trembling with that kind of fear. But I want you to understand as well, in addition to that is a certain level of spiritual danger that these men would have felt. You see, they're Jewish, and they would have grown up with knowing the stories that belong to their culture, and they would have understood the narrative that the Bible weaves together from the very first page. And a great feature or a great thread that you can see pulling through the whole of Scripture is the way that water is often, it seems, associated with a certain kind of spiritual chaos, even a spiritual evil. Certainly, it is associated with judgment. And that comes through in subtle ways and very vivid ways. It's, it's there even on the very first page uh, at the very beginning when God created the world. And, and it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And then God spoke, let there be light. And the waters are kind of understood a, a, as sort of, of, of the chaos that's in place, if you like. It's sort of, uh, of before form and fulfillment came into existence, before structure was brought to it. And then later, uh, when, the, when the world is judged in the, in the story of Noah, it's floods that are used. And when, and when God's people, when God rescues his people from Egypt, they go through the waters of the Red Sea. They're rescued. The waters are held back. And then Pharaoh's army is put under the water as the Red Sea falls back in. So as you go through the Bible, you see this theme of, of water as under God's power. God's in control of it all. But it's a frightening thing and it has spiritual significance. When Jonah the prophet runs away from God, the result is he goes out into the sea and he goes down into the sea, into the depths. He goes down into death in the waters. 
It even comes through in the Psalms as you read the songs of the Old Testament, the Psalms, the poets and, and singers, they talk about God is the one who rescued me from many waters. When the waters came up to my neck and I couldn't cope, I cried out to God, rescue me, save me. Waters are often understood to be a place of, of danger and even spiritual evil, spiritual darkness, spiritual chaos. And so for these soldiers, it's not just the sort of biological threat, if you like, the potential loss of life, just the reality that there's too much H2O and the wind is too, too strong, but, but there's a sense of something evil is afoot and we are in grave danger. And so you get some idea of the measure of the danger. But to add to that, secondly, you get not just the danger, but the disillusionment as you look at the story. The disillusionment. Because up till now, what you've noticed is that Jesus is more than equal, it seems, to uh, most challenges. As we've been going even through a, a series of, which, of, of, of Jesus' interactions with, with ordinary men and women in need, he's, he's been more than equal to, to all of the challenges he's faced. I mean, this is one reason why these guys are even they're in the boat. They've seen how powerful he is. He's, they've seen the authority with which he speaks to crowd. It's, it, it says at the end of Matthew ch chapter 7 that he speaks like someone with authority. Even earlier in this chapter when the centurion, an enemy soldier, comes to him and says, my servant needs healing, Jesus has authority to, to heal him even without going near him. The centurion says, no, you just, you just say the word because you've got the authority. When the leper comes to Jesus... Jesus isn't, you know, most people would freak out and run the other way in this culture. Jesus doesn't. He walks over to him, touches him. You're not supposed to touch a leper. You become unclean, diseased. You might even die. No, not Jesus. Jesus, in fact, heals the leper. Everywhere he goes, he just seems to demonstrate his power to overcome the problem. Sickness, opposition, crowds, nothing seems to beat him until now. Because here he is in the storm, and we've perhaps reached his limit. It seems perhaps to them that this is the enemy that Jesus can't defeat. This is the test that he's not equal to. You know, maybe you've seen in those movies where, you know, there's some individual or team who has, you know, a long shot fantasy of winning the tournament, whatever it is, and they just go through the stages, and, and they qualify, and then they go into round one, and they... They just make it, and then they get to round two, and they, you know, these kind of movies, and they kind of go through the stages of various kinds of foes that they have to defeat. And usually, the foe in the final uh, is not just the best, but for some reason in the film is always, you know, evil as well. So, you know, the, the protagonist has to kind of, you know, sort of overcome not just the best tennis player or the best, you know, whatever, but they're kind of cruel to children as well. And so you're, you're even more rooting for the underdog. And the whole film, film, the whole movie is about, you know, this underdog, this nobody, this outsider who comes from nowhere and wins. And we love these stories. And when they happen in real life, uh, occasionally, uh, we love it. And Jesus has, has been this kind of outsider and nobody from Nazareth. And he's kind of been beating all comers. He's just, you know, going, you know, up this amazing... A progression of successes until a real enemy. 
We, we, had, we had so much trust in him. We had, he, he had so much authority and power, but we hadn't factored in storm. You can't control this. You can't defeat this. In fact, not only does he seem at the crucial moment insufficient, but he's asleep. So their sense of danger is added to with a, with a sense of disillusionment. He's, wor- he's worse than a disappointment. He's asleep. He's asleep. How could he be asleep? We're perishing. It's interesting, though. Like I said, Jesus deliberately takes his disciples into these kinds of situations. He does it again and again. In fact, this isn't even the climactic version because there's coming a time when they won't be saying, help, we're perishing, but they'll be saying, you're perishing. You're not supposed to perish. When Jesus was taken away into his own storm, if you like, when Jesus was arrested and put on trial, when Jesus was cursed and shamed and mocked and stripped and beaten and bruised and spat upon and hoisted up, Nailed to a cross when Jesus was left hanging, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by men and rejected by God. The disciples, it was the end. It was the horrendous mother of all bad endings. Everything that had looked so hopeful. But at the final, at surely the most important point of testing, wasn't strong enough. And now he's in a tomb. He's asleep in the fullest sense of the word. He's buried. He's without life. You can't wake him up from this sleep. He's gone. Death has defeated him. It seems like these moments of crisis, Jesus is using to prepare them. He's trying to teach them something. He's saying, you guys, you've got to learn. You're going to go through some bewildering things. You're going to go through some dark nights. You're going to go through some good Fridays and Easter Saturdays where it's like, this, this, this isn't supposed to happen. I, I didn't expect this when I said, I'll follow you. Where are you? Why are you asleep? Why are you dead? Following Jesus will involve times where you're at least tempted to deep disillusionment. And there's a certain voice that disillusionment takes on. You know, Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And in Matthew's gospel, it doesn't just say, you know, we're perishing, but you get a, sl- a slight note of accusation in their tone with him. Don't you care we're drowning? Don't you care when you're tested to the point of difficulty, when you're tested to the point of panic and fear, when you feel like you're up against something that's too much for you, and, and, and you feel like, this is, this is the point in my life where I expect God to show up more powerfully. This is surely the time to shine, Jesus, right now, when I need you the most. This is surely when I should feel your presence. This is surely when, when, when you should intervene dramatically. You should show up on your white horse. You should rescue me. And you're asleep? Asleep? Don't you care? Ever felt like that? Maybe you've prayed like that. Maybe you've talked that way to God. Don't you care? I'll tell you, that's the voice of an honest disciple, right? Don't you care? 
That's what dis- disillusionment sounds like. Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care what I'm going through? Haven't you seen how hard it is for me right now? Where does that come from? What's the root of our distrust, of our suspicion, of our imputing carelessness to him, telling him that he doesn't care? Where, where does that come from? Is it because we've been let down a few times? I mean, that's an easy excuse, I suppose. It may be that you feel as though all your life you've been let down by a lot of people. Sometimes I'll talk with people and, and realize this is a big part of the narrative for them. A big part of the journey is a sense of, yeah, I've, I've just been let down. I've been let down by everybody. And so the sense of God letting them down just fits in with this, their, their story. Everyone lets me, me down, including Jesus. But I want you to know that that isn't the root of your distrust. It isn't. Because our story goes back further. You don't accuse God of letting you down just because others have let you down. That doesn't help. I mean, surely I agree with you. It underlines the problem when people let us down. But our problem is deeper. Our problem is that we as human beings, as a fallen human beings, people who've wandered away from God from the various early its beginnings of humanity. We have this pathological tendency to distrust, of distrust towards the loving and good God that made us for himself and made us to be happy with him. The Bible says that we chose distrust in, the, in paradise and that the heart of it was a decision to assume the worst of God. At the heart of it was believing rather in the lie that God was against us. Even when there was absolutely zero evidence of that. Even when not a single thing had been done to give us any sense that God meant anything for us but our, our absolute good. There was nothing in the Garden of Eden to even give a trace of suspicion that God had it in for us. Nothing. Nothing. Everything was generous provision and love. And yet we instead took on the lie. He doesn't want our best. He doesn't want my best. And the Bible would suggest that that's the root of our trouble. That is the problem. The wind and the waves that exist inwardly. The storm of distrust towards God. That is our deep problem. In fact, it's not only the biggest problem that we have, but it's the root of so many other problems. So many other troubles and difficulties are caused by the sense that we have that we can't trust him, that he isn't good, that he isn't powerful, and he isn't wise. And so he's not sufficient. He's not enough. And because he's not enough, I panic, I fear, I live in anxiety. And so let's look at the master's response. We've looked at the danger, then looked at the disillusionment. Let's spend a a bit of time before we finished on the master's response. How does he handle this situation? And I find this fascinating and kind of amusing. Jesus has been woken up in a storm, and it says in verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And the point seems uh, remarkable, that, that seems remarkable to me, is the order in which he deals with the problem. If you look at Mark and Luke, and Luke 
and, and their account of the same story. They don't put it in order. They just say, and he rebuked them. Uh, Matthew wants us to see the order. He uses the word then. He's saying, okay, you've got to get this. Jesus has woken up in the storm. First priority. Let's just have a little chat about this. Guys, can we talk? Why, why are you so frightened? Where's your faith? Which, if you think about it, is peculiar. Because most of us who are in a crisis situation of this magnitude, waves that are higher than the mass, the likelihood of, of drowning, most of us would not see that the urgent priority is now a little, you know, is a little TED talk on fear. But that's what Jesus does. It's, it's a bit like, you know, if, 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 say, my house is on fire and I call up the fire department, my house is on fire, please send help. I don't expect them to say, well, we'll send help, but first, can I just talk to you about your attitude in this situation? I mean, you sound very emotional about this whole thing, and, 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 and do, you, you know, do you feel that your emotions are warranted at this point? I wonder if you've thought about, considered the sense of distrust in us that that suggests, the inability to have confidence in the services that we provide. Jesus, though, he's like, yeah. We'll do it in this order. Why are you afraid? Jesus is more struck by the storm in his disciples than he is the storm outside the boat. That's the priority for him. He knows, what's, he knows exactly what's going on in their heart. He, he, he sees this as the thing to, to focus on. Just for, for a moment, guys, I, I can handle the storm. The storm's fine. The storm will take me seconds. It seems the that you guys are taking me years. The storm in here, that's taking me a while. I have spent a lot of time with you to help you settle, to help you trust, to have peace, to, to, to help you have rest, to, to help you do what I did. I laid down and slept in the boat. Maybe you could have done the same, at least some of you. Because you know what? This storm got the storm. Got the storm. You see, Jesus' priority in your life is for you to find the peace and rest that he has in his Father. That's it. That's it. Jesus, what he wants to achieve in your life is to get you to have to the point of resting and finding peace in his Father. Having the same level of trust and confidence that he has. And he's somewhat surprised they haven't got it. He's saying to them, you, you, you surely have seen enough by now. You stop and consider what you've seen. You, you've seen how I, I rebuke sickness, how I rebuke evil. You know my power and my authority, and yet you still panic. Can you please remember what you know? Can you please remember what you've seen? Can you please go back to what you know about me? Why do your hearts fail? Why are you afraid? Why are you of so little faith? And the question that we've got to face is, what kind of Jesus do I have? See, if we're panicking, if we're thinking the main problem I've got in my life is my boss, that's my biggest problem, my boss, or my biggest problem is my wife or my husband. That, that is my biggest problem right now. I don't know what your version of that 
that is. My biggest problem is my finances. My biggest problem, my health. My biggest problem, my wife's health. My whatever. Maybe a habit or an addiction. That's the thing. If Jesus would just fix this thing, please, this storm, if you would just focus on the storm, stick it to the storm, settle the storm, and then you can talk to me. But have you thought that maybe he's not going to? That maybe he's going to keep looking at you and saying, when are you going to learn to trust me? Because maybe he doesn't think that your finances or your health is the biggest problem in your life. Maybe he thinks the biggest problem in your life is your failure to trust his father. And he's going to let the storm roll for a bit longer. Because he wants you to be at peace. Wants you to learn peace. He's so good. He's so kind that the, one of the ways he teaches us is to keep showing us. I mean, see, if, I, if, if this is me, I'd be saying, well, you've seen enough miracles. You're done. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I think you've seen enough miracles, and we're just going to sit here in the storm until no one's leaving. Let's just all, you know, I think I'd be tempted to just let them. But Jesus is so gracious. He's so kind. He shows them again. Okay, I'll show you. Let me remind you. And he stands up, and he rebukes the storm. Peace. Be still. And it says there was a great calm. A great storm, a great calm. It's not just that the waters began to be less choppy for a few, you know, in a few hours they were back to normal. No, no, this was, this was a remarkable uh, miracle. This was immediate. The winds died. The, 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 the waves disappeared. Glass. What? Who does that? They say. Who does that? You see, he's the master of the storm. Do you know what? Jesus was the master of the storm before they got into the boat. Jesus was the master of the storm when the storm was at its height. Jesus would say to the storm, storm, be a storm. Storm, shh. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he upholds all things by the power of his word. When Jesus said, be still, it wasn't the first thing that the storm heard from Jesus that day. I don't know how this works. This is how Jesus is both God and man at the same time. But all of creation is being obedient to him all the time. In other words, the storm was being obedient to Jesus before they even got into the boat, right up until the time that he said, shh. At no point is a storm outside his absolute control. No time is your boss, your spouse, your kids, your finances, your health, your trouble. At no point are those things outside of his absolute control. He is the master. And at any point, he can say, enough. Enough. In fact, he can say that to you. It's only because he commands it that we still breathe. No wonder these guys were terrified. It says they marveled in the other gospels. It says they were greatly afraid. The storm is scary enough. Now I'm in a boat with a guy who controls the storm. And in fact, their fear is greater after the calm than it was in the storm. Jesus heals them from their disillusionment with him and their fear of the storm by making them frightened of him. Surely we need a bit of that in our lives. 
We need to be brought back into contact with the reality that the reality of a God who is in utter control. If you go through scary storms, you need a scarier God. And it's a difficult thing sometimes for us to get our heads around, but we must get our heads around. We must accept it because, friends, the sovereignty of God is healing to you. When you know in your soul that he's got the whole world in his hands, that everything that looks out of control in my life is not out of control, it simply isn't. Not one piece of it, not one atom, not one subatomic particle. He's in complete control. I must be persuaded. i got to be sure of that. He's in control. And this is how he serves us and helps us and heals us and prepares us and trains us. Because he sees the way we tremble. He sees our anxieties. He sees them, our daily anxieties. You wake up worried, right? Some of you. If you wake up at all, if you slept. Life is just one long worry for some of, uh, of us. Constant anxiety, constant anxiety. If I can't control the world, who can? If I don't know the future, the future is an enemy. No, not true. I don't know the future, but I know who holds the future. So, so, so they think it's so strange that Jesus is asleep. He's, he thinks it's strange that they're not. Why would, why would you not rest? Why would you not rest? You see, he teaches us to rest. That's what he promised. Come to me. I'll give you rest. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. I mean, you ever see kids traveling? Maybe you've seen on a boat or a plane with a, a family with young children. And young children can be noisy on planes. I've seen that. I'm sure you have too. But, but they can also be staggeringly quiet and still in the time when everyone else is going crazy. You know, when the adults are panicking and sometimes a two-year-old is just, you know, absent miles away dreaming of, I, I don't know, marshmallows. I, I don't know, miles away sleeping. Why? Why are kids like that? I think it's because they just instinctively think that mom and dad control everything. They just think, yeah, my mom and dad, they're in control of everything. So I can sleep. I can sleep because, yeah, mom and dad are in control. This is why it says in Psalm 4, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You alone. Not you plus circumstances going right. You plus the winds in the right direction. You plus me putting in a really good day's work. You plus me making all the right phone calls and emails. You plus me just you know, covering all the tracks and you know, everyone liking me and everything being good. No, no. You alone. You alone. And honestly, persuasion about this is healing. Being able to join Jesus in his trust of his father. If a kid can fall asleep on a bumpy car ride because mom and dad are there, Jesus, he's in control of everything. I know him and I can trust him. And we're going to come to uh, the communion table in just a moment and celebrate his good, the goodness of God that we see in Jesus but I want to share just one, one thing with you as we, we prepare ourselves to come to the table. The thing that strikes me is that when it says storm in this story, uh, it's the word that Matthew uses only twice in his whole book. He uses it here, and he uses it in chapter 27 when he's talking about when the world shook 
that the ground shook and the sky went dark when Jesus was crucified. Seismos, like a quake. It's like the, the ground opening up. You see, Jesus was going to go through the worst storm. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus dealt with the storm himself. And his authority over storms in our lives and his ability to bring us safely through them. Safely, loved, cared for, cherished, protected, like a child in, in a mother's arms. His, his ability to, to cradle us, it, it comes from his willingness to undergo the worst storm. Jesus went right through it. Jesus took it for us. And so when we take bread and wine um, this morning, we, we say to ourselves, Jesus, you're with me in the storm. You really are. And you're for me. And you love me. And you're patient with me. And you put up with all of my bleedings and my worrying and my anxieties, which there are so many. And he still forms us and transforms us. Forms us. We'll, we're, we're, we'll carry on. Listen, we'll carry on getting it wrong and being worried and having little tantrums. We're, we're like that. But isn't he patient? He's so patient. And so come this morning to this table this morning and celebrate his patience with you and his grace towards you. Come to the table. Take the, the bread and wine and celebrate the gift of God to you in Christ given for you, so that you might live in the rest that God provides. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. Uh, we thank you for what, we've, what we learn about him, what we receive from him. We thank you for what we learn and receive from you, our Father. We pray that you would help us as we abide in Christ to have the peace and the rest that he invites us into, even in the midst of our troubles and storms. But for that which we face is nothing in comparison to the storm of the storm that he willingly went into for us. And that storm that is pictured for us in great bringing great remembrance and strength and nourishment to us in this table that celebrates it. So be with your people now as we come to your table. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.